Welcome back to What You Will Learn. My name is Adam Ashton. And my name is Adam Jones. We just interviewed the big bad boy, Alex Benayan. Alex Benayan is the author of a new book called The Third Door. Now, The Third Door is a book that's all about when you're just getting started. You've got no name, no cred, no connections, no money, mm. and you want to work out how to get in. You've got three options. One is to wait in line. One is to be a VIP, which we can rule that out. So, the third option is to find some backdoor in. Yeah. Yeah, so it's, yeah, it's really interesting. It's all about the, you know, not the the first billion that um, Bill Gates made. It's about the first thousand bucks when they were all eating shit at the start and how they did it. So we we cover this kind of stuff in the interview, which was uh, I love listening to it. Also. Yeah, mate. So impressive uh, story in that he found all the best people in the world essentially: Bill Gates, Warren Buffett, Lady Gaga, Steven Spielberg. The list goes on and on and on. And uh, pretty much just how they all got started when they were nobodies. And how did they get their very first foot in the door? Yeah. That's so it's, sick. Yeah, no, legendary. The, third, the first foot in the third door. That's it, mate. Not, the, not waiting in line, <laughs> mate. Sneak around to that third door. All right. Time for the, uh, the, the, the band man. The band man. The bandwagon. Man, it sounds like you've, you were in a situation that Myself and I'm sure many, many, many others have found that you know we've we've had these big dreams going through school. We've been told of these uh, big goals and the impressive lives we're going to have, and we get to maybe college or university, and it's not quite what we expected. Does that sound? Is that sort of what what happened to you? Yeah, exactly. I was 18 years old. This is about seven years ago, and I was going through that life crisis. You know, I was lying on my dorm room bed, staring up the ceiling. And spending every day asking myself, like, what do I actually want to do with my life? What what am I actually interested in? Because you have to understand, since I was a kid, because I was the son of Jewish immigrants, I pretty much came out of the womb and my mom stamped MD on my ass and sent me on my way. (laughs) And, you know, I wore scrubs to school for Halloween as a kid. I went to pre-med summer camp. In high school, so when I was in college, it was the first time I ever had the space to wonder what I actually wanted to do with my life because all I knew is that I would look over at these stacks of biology books on my desk and feel like they were sucking the life out of me. So my questions of what do I want to do with my life began to spiral into these questions of how did all these people who I looked up to, how did they do it? How did Bill Gates sell his first piece of software out of his dorm room when nobody knew his name? How did Steven Spielberg, when he was rejected from film school, become the youngest studio director in Hollywood history? So I just assumed there had to be a book with the answer. So I went to the library. I went on Amazon and just bought all these business books and self-help books and biographies looking for a book that focused really on this stage in life, which is when someone is – you know. When no one wants to take their calls, when no one will take their meetings, how do they find a way to break through and launch their careers? But eventually I was left empty-handed. So that's when I very naively thought if no one's going to write the book I'm dreaming of reading, why not just write it myself? So yeah, you you talked about like at the start, no one really – because we obviously read a lot of books as well and there's – very rarely you do hear about the times when they're really eating shit at the very start or – or you know, going right. through some kind of kind of dip. So, I guess who was who were the people you were looking to interview and and really got this dream of yours going? One of the first stories that I came across, and it's funny because all the people who I interviewed, 
like you called it eating shit, but you know, it, it really is a, a big phase in life when you're starting out. Um, and it's people, it's people still face that phase even when they're more accomplished. And it doesn't matter if it was, you know, Bill Gates for business or Lady Gaga for music. Every person I interviewed from the first person to the last person over the seven year journey, I realized treats life and business the exact same way. And the analogy that came to me because I was 21 at the time was that it's sort of like getting into a nightclub. There's always three ways in. You know, there's the first door where 99% of people wait in line hoping to get in. And that's where the line curves around the block. And then there's the second door, the VIP entrance, where the billionaires and the celebrities slip through. And society has this way of making us feel like that's the only two ways in. You know, you're either born into it or you wait your turn like everybody else. But what I learned is that there's always, always the third door. And it's the door where you jump out of line, run down the alley, bang on the door a hundred times, crack open the window, go through the kitchen. There's always a way in. And it doesn't matter if that's how, you know, like I said, Gates sold his first piece of software or if that's how, you know, Steve Wozniak started Apple with Steve Jobs. They all took that third door. So you're saying that, yeah, most of us, we either think, okay, there's the, I guess, the traditional path of waiting in line for uh-huh. as long as possible until, you know, enough people get out the other end that we can get in. Right. Get an internship, get a job, get a promotion and just keep, you know, going step by step by step. Nice. Unless we're fortunate enough to be in the, the VIP where we might get to skip the line and get escorted in. Uh, you know, they lift the red velvet rope and, and just uh, take it straight to the front of the line, uh, which if they're, if they're your only two options and you're not a VIP, then it's probably a long, a long way to head here unless you can find that third door. Have you got a few uh, examples of uh, one or two of these, you know, third door style uh, that some of these big dogs took? Of course. So one of my favorites is Steven Spielberg. So he, since he was a kid just you know loved making home movies and was just obsessed with the idea of becoming a film director so of course he applied for film school after high school but he got rejected and then he applied again and he got rejected again but instead of just giving up on his dream what he did was fascinating he one day when i think he was about you know 18 or 19 years old he got on there's a I don't know. If, are you guys familiar with Universal Studios in Los Angeles? Yes, I've been there. Good ride. Oh, amazing! <laughs> right, exactly. So you know, there's the there's the tram ride that takes you around the lot of the of the film studio. Mm. And Spielberg, when he was about 19, got on to this tr- you know this tour bus tram ride at Universal Studios, rides the tram, jumps off hides in a bathroom, waits for the tram to drive away, and then starts walking around the lot. (laughs) (laughs) And he's walking around the lot, and eventually he bumps into this older man. His name is Chuck Silvers. And Chuck Silvers, you know, is like, who are you? What are you doing here? And Spielberg tells the truth, you know. He says his biggest dream is being a director. And, you know, they end up talking for an hour. And at the end, Chuck Silvers goes, do you want to come back on the lot? Spielberg's like, of course, that's that that'd be a dream. So Chuck Silvers writes Spielberg a three day pass. Mm. So Spielberg goes the first day and the second day and the third day, and then on the fourth day, he shows up in a suit 
you know, holding his dad's briefcase. And he walks up to the security gate and just waves his hand in the air and goes, hey, Scotty. And the security guard just waves back and Spielberg walks right through. <laughs> That's absolutely phenomenal. <laughs> is, there, is there any – I could listen to these kind of stories yeah. all day. <laughs> I, is there any more – and I know you've got your own story as well, something along the lines of a your price is right story, which was kind of a third door to, to helping you write right. the book. So can you tell us just another one of these kind of stories? So the way Bill Gates was first piece of software is one of the – I think it's just hilarious because – you know what? I actually have the book right here. Do you want to hear it? Yeah. Definitely. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> definitely. Okay. Let's – instead of me paraphrasing, let me give it to you direct. Hold on one second. It's in chapter called The Holy Grail Part 1. It is. <laughs> so the context of this story is this is the week before my interview with Bill Gates and I'm incredibly nervous and intimidated so i'm trying to visualize him when he was in my stage in life to try to calm me down so this is this is my attempt of trying to calm myself down by remembering this story (laughs) yeah so the story came to mind and it took place during bill's sophomore year at harvard he was 19 years old when paul allen barged into his dorm room and threw a magazine on the desk bill it's happening without us paul yelled on the cover of the magazine was a smooth, pale blue box with lights, switches, and ports. It was the Altair 8800, the world's first mini-computer kit. Bill tore through the article and realized that although MITS, the company that invented the Altair, had already created the hardware, it still needed software. Microsoft wasn't even an idea at the time, but Bill and Paul wrote a letter to Ed Roberts, the founder of MITS, and offered to sell software. Bill and Paul wanted to seem more legitimate, so they wrote the note on letterhead stationery from a company they started in high school called Trafodata. A few weeks passed with no response, and Bill had to be wondering, did the founder of MIT throw my letter in the trash? Did he find out I'm a teenager? Years later, Bill learned that the founder of MITS not only read the letter, but also liked it so much he wanted to buy software. He called the number on the letterhead, and a random woman answered. Bill and Paul had forgotten that their letter had still had a phone number from their friend's house in high school. (laughs) (laughs) But they didn't know that then, so back in Bill's dorm room, they're debating how to follow up. Bill Bill handed Paul the phone. No, you do it, Paul said. You're better at this kind of thing. I'm not going to call Bill's shop back. You call. Eventually, they came up with a compromise. Bill would call but say he's Paul. (laughs) (laughs) Paul Allen from Boston Bill said in his deepest voice Mitz was a small company so he didn't have trouble getting through to the founder we've got some software for the Altair that just about finished and we'd love to come and show it to you the founder was receptive and said they can come out to their office in Albuquerque, New Mexico to demo software Bill was overjoyed he only had one problem He didn't actually have any software. (laughs) So in the weeks that followed, Bill spent every minute he could coding. Some nights he didn't go to bed at all. One evening, Paul walked in and found Bill asleep on the floor by the computer terminals, curled up like a cat. Another night, Paul saw Bill passed out in his chair, using the keyboard as a pillow. After eight long weeks, Bill and Paul finished the software for the Altair. When deciding who should fly out to Albuquerque to make the pitch... They used simple logic. Paul should go. He has a beard. 
<laughs> so Paul boarded a plane with the software safely in his hands. And as the plane took off, he mentally went over the demo and realized, oh, my God, I didn't write a loader for this thing. A loader is the code that tells the computer this is software. Without it, the code is completely useless. So hunched over a fold-out table, Paul scribbled all the code (laughs) on a notepad from brute memory, finishing just before the plane's wheels hit the ground. He didn't even have a way to test it. The following day, Paul arrived at MIT's headquarters and the founder gave him a tour. They stopped at a desk with an Altair 8800 on top. It was the first time Paul had seen one in person. All right, the founder said, let's do it. Paul took a breath, loaded the software, and it worked. (laughs) Paul and Bill closed the deal, signed the contract, and that's how they sold their first piece of software. Mm. And for me, a single lesson stood out among the rest. Although his talent for coding was remarkable, none of this would have happened if Bill Gates hadn't pushed through his fears in his dorm room, picked up that phone, and called Mitz. It was his ability to do the hard, uncomfortable thing that made this opportunity possible. The potential to unlock your future is in your hands, but first you have to pick up the damn phone. Hell yeah. That's sweet. Man, I like that. So as you as you were sort of um, telling that story, man, obviously that uh, – I think obviously them and most, in fact, I'm going to say everyone listening, including us, we're not the VIP, so we're not skipping the to the front of the queue. We've got the choice to either stand and wait in line or sneak around the back. And uh, as you say, that that story of, you know, Bill Gates has made, uh, I don't know, 50, 60 billion or, or whatever. You know, it might be interesting to learn about how he made his first billion, but it's probably much more interesting for us and in our current stage to learn about not his first billion, but his first hundred or his first thousand, or as you say, like this exactly. the very first That's sale. That's the whole premise of this book. Yeah, exactly. It's not like, uh, you know, Richard Branson's biography or, you know, all these people, you know, big biographies, they're probably missing that very, very, very first thing where they were scared shitless, didn't even want to call the phone out to pretend to be someone else. Right. <laughs> so that's I love I love the sound of that man. Thank you so much. And so okay, so let's talk about how how you uh you know snuck around the back to you know Bill Gates, Steven Spielberg, Lady Gaga, Quincy Jones, uh, Warren Buffett, uh, all these guys that you've you've got in the book. I'm sure there was a, a fair bit of third dooring there. Yeah, with every single one and. You know, the funny thing is when I started this journey, I didn't have the term third door in my head. I just had to do whatever it took to get these interviews. And it wasn't until the journey was done in hindsight could I see that, you know, they all were the exact same method. While the stories were different, like for Larry King, I had to chase him through a grocery store. For Warren Buffett, I hacked his shareholders meeting. You know, with Bill Gates, it took two years of persistence. With Lady Gaga, it took three years of persistence. While all the stories on the outside are different, at the core, they're the exact same. And at the very, very start, like a, one of the misconceptions, or I don't know, maybe it's true that people make these huge bets. So they might have been doing something else. So say, you know, Bill Gates might have been at university mm, or Mark yeah. Zuckerberg might have been at university. Did they follow the stereotype and just quit everything and then just follow this big dream? Or were they a bit more cautious about about how they pursued these these big goals they uh, had? That is an amazing question because I assumed incorrectly what it was. When I was starting my journey, I assumed, you know, you see these headlines that say 
college dropout Mark Zuckerberg becomes a billionaire. And you just assume <laughs> that he just, you know, mm. said fuck school and left. If you've seen the movie The Social Network, it makes him look like this rebel who just, you know, lit his textbooks on fire and never looked back. Yeah. But it wasn't until I was faced with having to decide whether I was going to stay in school or not that I ended up researching how Bill Gates made his decision to leave school and how Mark Zuckerberg made his decision to leave school that I realized I had it completely wrong. So what I learned is that Mark Zuckerberg had 250,000 users for his website, thefacebook.com. And he was going in to meet with Peter Thiel to get his first investment for half a million dollars. And Peter Thiel asked Mark, because this is during summer vacation, he goes, are you going to go back to school in the summer? I mean, in the fall. And Mark goes, of course. So even at 250,000 users and getting a half a million dollar check to fund his company, Mark still wanted to go back to college. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't until Mark's co-founder, Dustin, said, look, man, we're having server issues. We don't have an operations guy. Like this thing could tank at any moment. Like why don't we just take one semester off, figure it all out, and then we can go back to school after that. And that was a huge breakthrough because that was the complete opposite of how that movie, you know, portrays Mark yeah, Zuckerberg. Cool. <laughs> and and then if you go and study Bill Gates, Bill was also extremely cautious and afraid of leaving college. And what Bill decided was that he was going to take one semester off from Harvard and work on Microsoft. And this is already when Mike, this is after Microsoft had sold their first piece of software, so they already had a customer. So Bill takes that semester off, but then Microsoft doesn't do as well as he had hoped, so he actually went back to college for a semester. And it wasn't until after that semester that he took another semester off and another and eventually dropped out. But again, like what I was so shocked was how cautious and scared these guys were Hmm. from making this jump. And what I realized is that neither of them were fearless. If anything, they were actually more scared than most other people. Mm. The difference was that they weren't fearless, but they were courageous. And the difference between fearlessness and courage is that fearlessness is jumping off the cliff without looking. You know, that is idiotic. If anybody says they're fearless, I walk the other way. But what they did have was courage. And courage is looking at your fear, agreeing with your fear, analyzing the consequences, but deciding that it's still the right thing to do and you're going to take one cautious step after another. Mm. I think it's important to uh, realize as well that it wasn't just these, these overnight successes, you know, that Bill Gates, he took a semester off, went back for another semester, then took another semester off. So there's there's at least a year and a half already that it, it wasn't just, uh, you know, he made his first oh, sale totally. and then he was he was off to the races and just uh, he was made from there on. Um, but it's probably good to realize that, think at the start maybe that it's going to be easy. And you talk about the naivete of, uh, you know, not realizing or not knowing what you don't know, not realizing how hard it's going to be that because you don't realize how long it's going to take and how hard it's going to be then, you think it's easy, so you just start doing it, which is probably probably a really good right. way to start. 
You know, the difference, what I've realized is, you know, being a naive entrepreneur or being an amateur in whatever your industry is, has, you know, of course, a ton of downsides. You don't have connections. You know, you don't have experience. But what I realize is there's a flip side to it, which is because you don't have any experience, you're not limited by what you think is possible. And what I've realized is that the reason many of these world-changing phenomenons happen when people are, you know, quote unquote, not experts in the field. You know, Elon Musk is not a rocket science expert. Mm. You know, Bill Gates wasn't a software expert. You know, he was a 19 year old kid who just coded in his free time in high school. But the reason they're the ones who make these breakthrough innovations is that they're not withheld and they're not set back by, you know, quote unquote, what the experts believe is mm. the right thing or the possible thing. Not having experience is sometimes the biggest and the most valuable thing because you believe anything is possible mm-hmm. and nothing's more powerful than that. Yeah. Oh, definitely. It's absolutely sick. Another another big um, maybe misconception, I'm not sure, is uh, this idea of taking a break. I mean, if you listen to like dudes like Gary Vaynerchuk, it's like sleep three hours a night, just fucking hustle all day, all this kind of stuff. Did you find this to be the case for all the all the guys you interviewed at the start of their journey? Do they do they just work twenty four seven to get their their idea going? So, I'll get. There's two answers to that. I'll tell you one story of a person who I interviewed by the name of Chi Lu, and Chi Lu grew up in a village outside of Shanghai, China, with no running water and no electricity. By you know age twenty seven, he was making the most money he's ever made. $7 a month. <laughs> Fast forward 20 years later and he's a president at Microsoft. Mm. And it's one of the most phenomenal stories you'll ever hear. And one of the keys to Chi's success is that he engineered his sleep when he was in college so he could function off of four hours of sleep a night. And by cutting his sleep from eight hours to four hours, he essentially added two months of productivity to the calendar year. Mm. Now, you know, that's one side of the spectrum. On the other side of the spectrum is, you know, my own experiences in the sense that, you know, there are definitely times when you need to be going 100 miles an hour. And, you know, when I was starting out writing this book, you know, I would wake up at six o'clock every morning. You know, right now that I'm working on the book launch, I wake up at six o'clock in the morning every day. So there's definitely like a ferociousness that's incredibly important. But I also, realized and I learned this last year when my dad passed away is that you also need to be a human being Mm. and what's more important than the amount of hours you put into the day is how well you treat yourself you know if you just hate yourself and you just make your life miserable for yourself on the first hand what the fuck's the point of the success you're trying to achieve if you hate your life and you're miserable Mm. and on the second hand you're probably not going to achieve it because you hate your life and you're miserable. <laughs> you'll probably find a way. To, you'll probably give up. You'll probably burn out. You'll probably self-sabotage. Hmm. So yeah. while it's incredibly important to, you know, of course, work hard and put in the hours, if you're doing that and you're not able to function, you feel horrible, you can't think clearly, you're probably not going to be at your optimal. And what I learned because on this journey, I got – 
you know, rejected hundreds of times and knocked to the floor hundreds of times. I think one of the reasons that I was able to keep going on the seven-year journey and not give up is because I did take breaks. You know, after eight months of getting rejected from Warren Buffett, you know, I took a couple of weeks off mm. and I watched some Netflix and I hung out with my friend and I sulked and I complained. And I think that's important whether you have a couple of days or you take a week to just acknowledge that this is hard. Yeah. And if it wasn't hard, someone else would have done it already. Mm. And if you're going to go out and this is something Dean came and taught me one of the interviews I did with him. If you're going to go out and do something that no one's done before in your own unique way, you're going to face setbacks that no one's faced before either. Mm. So you need to be prepared and you need to treat yourself the way you would treat your own best friend. Hey, that's absolutely sick. Absolutely love that. <laughs> you obviously, uh, when in writing this book, you obviously read absolute shitloads of books. What what <laughs> books that you read have been the most influential on you or been your favorite books? So there's a ton. Um, when I was first starting out, one of the books that helped me get the courage to pursue my dream was Delivering Happiness by Tony Shea. Mm. Tony Shea is the CEO of Zappos. And it's the story of not only how he created this incredible company with incredible company culture, but it's really the beginning of the book follows a story of how you know, Tony grew up and how he quit his job at a corporation to pursue his dream. And reading about the way Tony pursued his dream made me feel like mine was possible. So that was incredibly impactful and it's a really quick and inspiring read. Other ones that were a lot more practical um, – the 4-Hour Workweek by Tim Ferriss is incredible. Never Eat Alone by Keith Ferrazzi is incredible. Um, the Magic of Thinking Big is real, like, you know, just underlines and highlights on every page. Mm. Um, things that help me with just my mindset and my perspective on life. The Art of Possibility by Benjamin Zander is wonderful because it just – he treats life – like the sun is always shining and anything's possible. And what I realize is whether you believe that's true or not, you're right. If you believe life is shitty and nothing's possible, you're right. And if you believe life is wonderful and anything's possible, you're also right. Because mm. the truth is life is just what you decided to be. And now look, your circumstances, you don't get to decide those to be. Some people have circumstances that I can't even – Imagine what it's like, whether it's, you know, growing up in poverty or, you know, being victim to sexual abuse. You know, some people have just really hard hands. But something that I've learned through my interviews and through my reading is that as hard as life gets, and this is something Maya Angelou taught me, you know, she grew up in a time in America where a black man can be hung from a tree and it's, you know, not a big deal, which is terrifying and nauseating to say the least. And, you know, she was raped when she was eight years old. And when she grew up, she was, you know, beaten by her boyfriends and held hostage by another partner and, you know, spent time as a madam and a prostitute and, you know, just a really hard life. Um, but what 
makes her so remarkable in my eyes is not her circumstances, but the way she was able to turn that darkness into light. And something she taught me is that every storm runs out of rain. And you have to remind yourself that and you have to keep going. Fantastic, man. That's we love it. Sick. Um, <laughs> man, what, uh, as we sort of come to the end now, obviously it's a sick book, a sick journey. Whereabouts can people find you? Where can they find the book? Thank you so much. Yeah, the book is available right now on Amazon. And it's not only on Amazon, it's on iBooks and Audible and, you know, anywhere books are sold. And if you do buy the book online, head over to my book website, which is thirddoorbook.com. So T-H-I-R-D, thirddoorbook.com. And you can get bonus updates and, you know, bonus prizes for ordering the book right now. Fantastic, mate. Thanks so much. It was great to chat and uh, all the best with the book and whatever comes next. Thank you guys so much. I really appreciate it. This was a ton of fun.